The 2022 Munich Security Conference was probably the last time Ukraine's President Volodymyr Zelensky appeared in public in a suit and tie. Four days after last year's conference ended, Russia launched its full-scale assault on its neighbour. President Zelensky opened the 2023 Munich Security Conference last weekend by video link in his now familiar khaki. His country's resistance and the world's response to it was the inevitable dominant theme of this year's event. This episode of The Foreign Desk is the first of a few we recorded at Munich and is intended to give listeners some sense of what it is like to be there, which is to say, what it is like to hurtle along an absurd interview schedule from President to Prime Minister to Foreign Minister to Defence Minister to General to Air Marshal to Archbishop to Activist, while being hustled by minders in and out of the Hotel Bayerischer Hof, the lobby of which looks like it is hosting a game of 200-a-side indoor rugby being inexplicably played by Earth's most powerful people. In this episode, we discuss Ukraine's war for survival and Europe's efforts to support it with Belgium's Prime Minister, Iceland's Foreign Minister and the President of the Open Society Foundations. This is The Foreign Desk. We need to hurry up. We need the speed, speed of our agreements, speed of decisions to limit Russian potential. There is no alternative to speed. This is really a very brutal war. It is the imperialistic approach of uh, Russia to conquer the whole Ukraine still. And this is why Germany enlarged constantly its capacity of support for the Ukraine. That now we can say that Germany is the biggest supplier also of weapons to Ukraine in continental Europe. And we will continue to be there. The United States has formally determined that Russia has committed crimes against humanity. And I say to all those who have perpetrated these crimes and to their superiors who are complicit in these crimes, you will be held to account. You're listening to The Foreign Desk. I'm Andrew Muller. Later in the show, we will hear from Iceland's Foreign Minister and Belgium's Prime Minister, but our first guest is Mark Malloch-Brown, President of the Open Society Foundations and former Deputy Secretary-General of the United Nations. I began by asking Lord Malloch-Brown how different the tone of this year's Munich Security Conference has felt compared to previous years. Well, of course, any Munich conference gets prepared some months in advance. They write a report and it captures the world as it is then. And the report last year didn't yet imagine the invasion and instead was all about how can we broaden the concept of security. It was a little bit like NATO itself, an organisation looking for a mission and a purpose in a world where Europe at least seemed to have the prospect of long-term peace. Now, I overdo it because, you know, Russia has always been stirring in its neighbourhood. But nevertheless, the fact that a year later we would have gathered at Munich in the shadow of a major European war, which has some of the overtones of a possibly wider conflict, is an astonishing reversal of recent history. And, you know, I think it's not just the Munich agenda and themes of this weekend which reflect that, but just German public opinion. Germany has come from a country imbued with a deep sense of pacifism. And now on the stage at Munich, 
Chancellor Schulz confirmed that they will get 2% of GDP on defence spending, confirmed again the pledge to send tanks to Ukraine. This is, in the space of a year, a very different Germany. Now, again, the historic antecedents were there. Merkel had been shifting quietly towards some degree of defence improvement and rearmament. But, you know, we've got to wonder if a year from now we will look back on this Munich as the signal of when the remilitarization of Europe began. That chimes into the general impression I've been getting in that for so much over the last year there's been this concern about will Europe's resolve hold? Whereas it seems to me that if anything, the mood is actually hardening. Do you think that's fair? I think it is hardening. I think, though, it's hardening because people recognise just what a challenge Zelensky and the Ukrainians face. They are outgunned, they are outnumbered, and the risk is they're out-ammunitioned too. And in some ways, this is becoming a war about supply chains, with both the Russians and Ukrainians casting around for the sort of military supplies they need to successfully prosecute this war. And there's a real sense that... This is like one of those 15-round boxing matches when the winner is the last one standing, when both boxers are deeply blooded and barely on their feet. So I think people are nervous in Europe, and I think that's what's driving this. But the fact is that nervousness has not yet turned into a robustness of response on a sufficient scale to deliver what logic now demands, which is some kind of Ukrainian knockout blow, which brings the Russians seriously to the peace table. You know, we still are arming Ukraine defensively to allow it to stop the Russians, but not defeat the Russians. And I think that's what Europeans are struggling with because they know going that next step really does risk serious escalation. So it's not an easy choice. That's a partial answer to my next question, which was, do you think that nervousness is still about the idea of misjudging what Russia would or would not regard as a completely intolerable level of involvement? Yes, I think it does, because, you know, we know or we guess at one Putin red line, which is an effort to reoccupy or win back the Crimea. I think we're much less clear about Donbass, which he only holds part of anyway, and we're much less clear about what level of carrying the conflict into Russia itself he would accept. I mean, would he accept that attacks on Russian supply chains, which are located behind the Russian border, was not an escalation for which he had to go nuclear or not. So, you know, I think that it's hard, and this is not exactly a very transparent regime, the Russian regime, and it's also a regime now under huge internal pressure, not with its own public opinion, which seems relatively blind to what's going on, but, you know, it's losing a lot of its smartest people who are going into exile but more particularly he's Putin's got a problem of his right-wing nationalists who feel he's not prosecuting the war with enough effectiveness a smaller group of liberals to the left but many of them have gone into exile who are protesting this evidently mad and criminal enterprise this war so you know where all these factors play out for Putin is I think hard for people to 
to decide. If there isn't agreement on strategy other than that Putin needs to be stopped, there also isn't really agreement beyond the military dimension who's going to deal with this massive long-term economic reconstruction need? Are the Russians going to be taxed for it through some kind of reparations arrangement? Unlikely, but they certainly deserve to be. Or what is the other mechanism for a bill that the World Bank has estimated is $350 billion? I mean, this is an incredibly expensive war because it has so recklessly targeted Ukrainian civilian infrastructure and Ukrainian civilians. It's a sort of 19th century war played with 21st century kit. How exposed, I guess, has it left the organisation for which you were Deputy Secretary General? The United Nations, what options does it have when it's one of the P5 has gone rogue? Well, two things. I mean, one, it's brought forth calls for the first time ever from a US president and his senior team to look at Security Council reform. That's new, because the US has always historically considered itself to be the likely loser in any removal of veto rights or removal of permanent status. But it's showing some change. The second thing that's happening is that ordinary member states themselves are starting to sort of fire up a bit UN reform efforts, which have been dead for a long time. So there's been a resolution passed, which now requires a General Assembly vote after any permanent five use of the veto. And this has already been used to good effect to embarrass the Russians. But, but, but you're dealing with a government stroke criminal enterprise that doesn't really do embarrassment. And so the difficulty is really what other tools are available to you. And here, the UN has, because of this P5 veto, not really been able to do that much. It's been reduced to some very important but secondary issues. It was deeply involved in the grain deal, which has allowed Russian and Ukraine deal out. And that's had a huge impact on the other crisis, the poly crisis, out there beyond Ukraine in terms of stabilizing world food prices. Its IAEA agency has been able to get some kind of oversight into the civilian nuclear reactor plant that the Russians are occupying in Ukraine. So it's been critical at the margins, but it's not in there able to deploy its peacemaker or diplomacy skills to try and end this conflict. I want to ask a bit as well about open society and what you've been able to do in Ukraine in particular in the last year, because this has to be an extremely challenging environment for any civil society organisation to be trying to get things done in. Yeah, no, it is. It's highly problematic. We have spent a quarter of a billion dollars in Ukraine over the last quarter of a century plus on democracy, human rights and economic reform, basically. And, you know, I think, to be honest, as we came into this war, we would have scored our impact as mixed. The country was thought of as still being very corrupt. There were still oligarchs, very dominant in its politics. There was not great stability of government. The Russians were interfering. And while human rights were reasonably respected in at least the non-Russian parts of the country, it was a mixed track record. I don't think we would have said this was one of the best returns on a grant-making investment we'd made. 
but you know that man Putin trust him to uh, help in many unanticipated ways the guy has a accident proneness which we democrats can only celebrate <laughs> at times because you know he's managed in his sour cruel way amidst the slaughter of civilians and the rest to create or reignite a depth of Ukrainian democratic patriotism and pride, which our Ukrainian partners tell me is indissoluble. That, you know, whatever happened at the end of this war, once the Russians are gone, the fuel for its success has been the democratic aspiration of the people of Ukraine. And so the Ukraine after the war will be a kind of hardened human rights protected democracy preserving country i think that was mark malak brown speaking to us in the hotel bayerischer hof in munich you're listening to the foreign desk You're listening to The Foreign Desk with me, Andrew Muller. Our next guest is Alexander de Croo, the Prime Minister of Belgium, a position he has held since October 2020. I began by asking the Prime Minister why Belgium has been so reluctant to supply Ukraine with the F-16 fighter jets President Zelensky has requested. Just from an operational point of view, it's we need them. And we use them high intensity. We use them for our own airspace. We use them in the Baltics, where we've been doing air policing for NATO over the last years. We really have no F-16 that we can miss. So there's no resistance from a kind of ideological perspective on our side. It's just that we need them. Do you share, though, fundamentally, President Zelensky of Ukraine's analysis that Ukraine is essentially at this point fighting Europe's war for it. I mean, you've said yourself that Ukraine's fight for freedom and democracy is also a fight for European values. Oh, I think that's correct. Yeah. And that is the reason why we need to continue to support them and step up the support is that we, as the Western world or European countries, we need to defend what we stand for. And I mean, obviously, Russia doesn't like the European construction Obviously, we felt that over the last years, that is not new, is that they would do anything to try to divide Europe because it's much easier to bully a small country like Belgium with 11 million inhabitants than to have a block of 27 countries in front of them. Are you surprised one year on by how solid so far that European resolve has been? Because it has been, an, I think, an unusually coherent period Correct. in Europe's outlook towards the rest of the world. And there has been a it seems a suspension of Europe squabbling amongst itself. Yeah, I'm not going to say surprised, because that would mean that it's unexpected, <laughs> but it's reassuring. I would rather say that it's reassuring that in difficult circumstances we stick together. I think that from the perspective of the Russians, it's probably unexpected. I think that the Russians probably thought that they would just divide European countries. They do efforts in trying to divide us. So it's reassuring that that unity is there, the whole point, of course, and that for me is the major learning here, is what is the duration perspective of this conflict in Ukraine? You have many indications that this might be a long conflict and that actually Russia is digging them in in Ukraine and might actually be more in a defensive perspective than they are in an offensive perspective. That could lead to a very long conflict, which means that our support to Ukraine, we'll, we might have to ha 
need the stamina to be able to support them on the long run. When you talk about Russia still seeking to divide Europe, which is doubtless the case, but I guess, where do you see that specifically occurring? What tactics are they employing? Obviously, you see that, for example, on the energy side, they've tried to make bilateral deals with some countries to give them preferential access to energy. That is gone now. And that is one of the most important elements of good news, is that you could say today that Russian energy is not a weapon of war anymore. It was, and it's quite remarkable how in a time span of a year, we've been able to take that element away. We see also throughout Europe that there is disinformation campaigns, there is extreme right and extreme left parties that are being pushed and so on. All these things are not new. They've been uncovered over the last months. And there is only one ambition that's trying to disunite the European partners. There was, I think, a slight perhaps element of disunity between Belgium and everybody else attached to the 10th I think we're up to now, round of sanctions. This is the issue of diamonds. Mm -hmm. You have said yourself that Russian diamonds are blood diamonds. So why the hesitation there? Why resist diamonds being included Mm -hmm. in that package? There's no hesitations on the fact that we want the blood diamonds trade from Russia to stop. The question is, how do you do it? We, Belgian and Antwerp, we play a major role, but that's in wholesale diamonds. And so you could say, we'll stop the wholesale diamonds in Antwerp. And we have actually reduced the diamond trade from Russia with almost 80%. But the export of diamonds from Russia have no impact. I mean, instead of going to Antwerp, it goes to other countries who are non-aligned on the sanctions. And so the diamonds are still in our retail stores in Europe, in London, in the United States. So the only way to stop it and to stop that Russia makes money on that, is with a ban not on wholesale diamonds, but on retail diamonds. And so there, the European Commission is working together in a G7 format. And we've been very supportive of that. Belgium is not a G7 country. Not yet. Not, <laughs> not soon, probably. But there, we've worked on that. And we see that in the next months, that retail ban is going to be there. That is the only effective way of doing it. Because if you would have done it on the wholesale part, Yeah, it would have had an impact in Europe, but no impact on the Russian trade. Is there no domestic political consideration for you here, though? You do lead a coalition of seven parties, which Mm -hmm. can't be easy at the best of times. You can get used to it. (laughs) But is this something that would have encountered resistance within that coalition? No, we're reliant on the fact that we want that Russian diamond trade to stop. But it would not have been very effective to only stop it on the Belgian level to know that the diamonds in another way would end up in a retail stores in any case, and that consumers would not even know when they are buying a diamond where the diamond is coming from and that they have something nice on their finger or on their neck, but that they're actually financing the Russian economy. So that tracing system, that has taken some time to build that tracing system, but we are extremely happy that in the next months it will be there and it will be effective. To return to the subject of Ukraine, you, you met President Zelensky most recently when he was in Brussels earlier this month, I think. I think the whole world has been kind of mesmerized by the journey he has been on Mm -hmm. over the last year, sort of adapting from being this comedian turned president to becoming leader of a country at war. And it just occurs to me that this must be seen very differently by that small coterie of people who also know what it is to be leader of a national government. How does it seem to you? How strange does that look to know that there is another European head of government having to be put through this? Well, first time we we spoke to him on a video link a few days after the attack, 
he said, it's probably the last time you're going to see me. And unfortunately, we all believe that. And for me, the main learning is that there is no fatality and things can change and you can influence things and you can influence things with policy, but also with motivation. And, and it's incredibly inspiring to see how he has rallied his country, but also rallied an incredible coalition of people around the world who have sympathy for Ukraine, for a country that well, we all knew about, but a lot of European countries did not really have affinity relations with Ukraine. So interesting how he was able to do that. But indeed, one cannot imagine the pressure that he must be confronted with every day and the difficulties he has to manage. He's been incredibly successful in what you could call the foot-in-the-door policy. <laughs> and any time he comes up with something, sometimes the first reaction was, mm, we're not convinced we're going to do that. And then a few weeks later, it was evident that we would do it. And so he's been very effective in pushing his agenda, in understanding, and that always strikes me in any bilateral discussion I have with him, is that he knows extremely well the questions that he should ask to Belgium and the questions he shouldn't ask because he knows that that is not something we have capabilities on. So they're incredibly well prepared and organized. He has, of course, reiterated time and again that he sees Ukraine's future in the EU and in NATO, and he's had generally fairly favorable responses, mm -hmm. in theory at least, from the EU and NATO. But do you think there is any question that the EU or NATO should make the kind of adjustments that would be necessary to allow Ukraine in, or is this just not a realistic prospect as long as this war continues? Well, first of all, we have to applaud the steps that have been taken by Ukraine and the progress that they've made, which is really remarkable. But the process is a process that is set, and there's a reason why it is a heavy process. That's because I mean, joining the European Union, is there's a lot of things that those 27 countries have established. So getting up to that level demands a lot of effort. There will be no cutting corners in achieving that. But the progress is way better than we could expect from a country with the starting position they had and a country that is at war today. Do you think there's any argument, though, for cutting any corners where any countries are concerned? You spoke earlier about the efforts that Russia is making to divide and sow various mm. kinds of havoc in Europe. And one of the places they are most obviously doing that is in the Western Balkans. Does it strike you that that's possibly a place where there's an argument for saying, let's just get them in and figure out the difficulties afterwards? No. I think that we should say, let's get them in and let's help them to get in. And we as European countries have to be serious as well. When they make progress, we need to help them on their political capital. I mean, it demands a lot of effort. As a leader in a Western Balkan country, it's not easy to do all those reforms, and it takes time. And I, you could imagine that at some point, as a politician, you lose political momentum because it just seems too difficult. There, we need to be more effective to show that there are prospects, that they're part of the club, that it's actually not that far away. So we need to be more effective in helping them not in cutting corners. Well, just a final thought then. Europe has now emerged more or less from a winter which I know a lot of people were concerned mm -hmm. about, whether or not the resolve of European publics would hold up if energy started getting really incredibly expensive or possibly non-existent. Do you think that European governments, your own included, have done enough to stress that at barely one remove, Europe is at war with Russia here, and this is probably going to get extremely difficult at some point if it hasn't already, because mm -hmm. it's very easy almost anywhere in Europe other than Ukraine to forget that there is a war occurring. 
True. It's 2,000 kilometers from here, hmm. which is a distance most of the Belgians would do easily for a holiday. So it's not that far away. Last summer, I said that we're heading for at least five difficult winters. And some people were surprised when I said that. I see no indication that there will be an easy solution to the situation that we have. And, and listening to everything here in Munich, I remain convinced that the next winters will remain complicated. But on the energy side, we have done much, much better than expected. But I think what we need to be careful on the battlefield, if I can shift to, to that discussion, is we have to be careful for complacency. The Ukrainians have done an incredible job. And their successes on the battlefield obviously help us to explain why we're doing this. But there might be some thinking that, you know, oh, we deliver weapons and the Ukrainians will fix it because they've been so amazingly good. That complacency, I think, is a dangerous one because on the other side of the Ukrainians, with all their qualities they have, you have a Russian army that shows that despite the billions over the last 20 years that Vladimir Putin has invested in the modernization of his army, that it's still not very effective. People are not well-trained. The maintenance is not good. The equipment might seem good on paper, but is not very effective. But combined with that, President Putin combines hundreds of thousands of soldiers with a complete disregard for the value of the life of a Russian soldier. And I mean, being confronted with that is a tough thing. It's a tough thing for all of us to see that. I think we've learned a lot, but if you are confronted with a gigantic army that is being used in the way we've seen it mm -hmm. over the last weeks, it shows that the next years might be extremely difficult and we'll really have to step up in continuing to support the Ukrainian army. That was the Prime Minister of Belgium, Alexander de Croo, speaking to us at the Munich Security Conference. A recurring theme of Munich this year was concern among Ukraine's European allies that they might not have made the case clearly enough that the stakes in play are of global magnitude. And when the UN General Assembly voted to condemn Russia again this week, it was noticeable that of the 32 countries who abstained, many were among what is thought of as the Global South. Well, finally, on today's show, we hear from Thordis Kolbrun Rekford Gilfordotir, Iceland's Minister for Foreign Affairs. I began by asking the Minister whether she worries that the war in Ukraine, immensely important though it obviously is, is drawing attention away from other serious geopolitical issues. I think a lot of people experience that, especially people from further away from other regions. I think that if there's some truth in that, it's not an excuse to do less in Ukraine or to talk less about Ukraine. We just need to step up and talk about all the issues because whether we like it or not, we are all in this together. And I know that for some that sounds as a phrase or a cliche, but it really is the truth. And what I feel that when you're listening to, for example, some of the African leaders or countries, of course there's also truth in that when they say, if we're in this together, where were the vaccines? That's just the most recent example. So I truly believe that there is no limit on where we can focus and move things in the right direction and giving the attention that it deserves. All these issues. I mean, I was this morning with female foreign ministers, and we didn't really decide beforehand what exactly we were going to talk about. But then we talked about Afghanistan and Iran the whole time. And all of those ministers are extremely focused on Ukraine every day and have been for a year. 
But that doesn't change the fact that, you know, Annalena and I had this vote in the Human Rights Council regarding the situation in Iran. And I know that we have to, for example, remind everyone over and over again about the situation in Afghanistan. But it's not an excuse to talk less about Ukraine. We just have to have the focus where it's needed. And unfortunately, it's needed in a lot of places now. One of the things that struck me, certainly talking to politicians and former politicians from all over Europe in the last year, is the degree to which their attitude to Russia now is guided by their country's proximity to it and their previous relationships with Russia. Obviously, the leaders from the Baltic states and Eastern Europe tend to be fairly hard-headed in their views about Russia, and understandably so. But the nations of Scandinavia and the Arctic, of course, have a different relationship with Russia as well, because you are all, in a way, Arctic nations. Is there still any point of contact between, say, Iceland and Russia over Arctic issues now? Like, I, I know you're not going to Lavrov's farewell of the Arctic Council stewardship in Salakhad in May, but is there any contact at all between the Arctic countries and Russia anymore? On the political level, no, absolutely none. In March last year, we freezed all of it. Then in the early summer, we started working on a project that didn't have Russia in it. And it turned out that there was more than half or around half of the project within the Arctic Council's work. So there's a lot of work going on, but there's absolutely no talks or relations with Russia within the Arctic Council. Norway will be chairing from the spring, and of course the Arctic issues doesn't go anywhere. I mean, the ice is melting and the climate is happening and the routes will eventually open and we will have to be sure that the international law is respected in that area because we see changes and we know that it's going to change and it's going to have a lot of consequences. But we will have to figure out what the future of the Arctic Council is because it is a very important venue. And the Ottawa Declaration says very clearly that we can't make a formal decision without having everyone around the table. So we will have to figure out a way to do that. But The Arctic states and Iceland, we have no political relationship with Russia now. And I think when you look at the Baltics, for example, we should have listened. We should have listened to them. They said it out loud very clearly for many, many years. Don't trust them. They will be back. They are a threat. And, you know, I think they were at some point just kind of screaming in the desert. And people were like, okay, you know, the past is the past. Now we have to focus on the future, get over what has happened. We learned from that, but now we have a different kind of strategy. Because sometimes when you have intelligence and you have these big institutions and all of it, but then you just have human beings that have experience and they have it in their fingers because they know them and they're close to them and they're neighbors. And they sometimes you also have to listen as a human being to a human being and it's obvious that we should have listened more. That's a partial answer to the question I was going to ask next which was within the specific context of the Arctic Council and Arctic relations generally do the non-Russia countries now have to take more of a lead from what the Baltic states have been trying to say for 30 years because obviously as you know a lot of Europe, especially that part of Europe further away from Russia, had been telling itself for 30 years that if we incorporate Russia, that if we deal with Russia, trade with Russia, treat Russia like it was a normal country, it'll come round to our way of thinking eventually. Do you think that all hope on that front just basically has to be abandoned? Yes, for the time being and for the foreseen future, 
You know, I think most of us somewhere believe that with trade and with dialogue and with talks and with exchange of culture and people, you know, we would somehow end up in a better place. But now it's obvious what we're dealing with. And for the Baltics, it was almost obvious for a long time. And I, I don't think that's going to change in the coming years. How will the situation be when my young kids will be adults? I don't know. You know, when all of this happened... It was a surprising emotion that I felt. I looked at my kids, which are very fortunate. I mean, they, they were born and raised in Iceland, a peaceful country with gender equality and doing extremely well. But still I was sad for them, for their generation. Because you always want to believe that, you know, history moves in the right direction. And we have generations that fought for these values and we were promised never again. And, you know, my childhood was without this. So for me, I just wanted to believe and I was kind of very sure that they would also be raised without this. I mean, they have climate crisis and mental crisis and all kinds of crisis, but like old school, disgusting, inhuman war in Europe was not on my list for the things that I had to prepare for my kids because my parents didn't have to prepare me for it because it was already gone almost when I was kids in Iceland. I wanted to ask also about the applications of Sweden and Finland to join NATO, which one assumes will go through eventually. Does that make any difference, do you think, to Iceland's security? Does Iceland feel safer for thinking that those two Scandinavian neighbours are now on board as well? Absolutely. It has a huge impact on our region. These two countries are our closest partners and friends, but if you look at it cold-hearted from the security, defense, deterrence aspect, it's obvious that uh, with them inside NATO, Iceland is safer because the region will be safer and it goes with the Arctic as well. So it has a big impact, their decision to join NATO. And I truly hope that we will finish that as soon as possible. You know, NATO also needs Finland and Sweden inside. That was Iceland's Minister for Foreign Affairs, Thordis Kolbrun Rekford Gilfadotir, speaking to us at the Munich Security Conference. That's it for this episode of The Foreign Desk. We'll be back next week and look out for The Foreign Desk Explainer, available every Wednesday. We'll have more from Munich next week, focusing on how Ukraine's war has redrawn the security architecture of Scandinavia, with the foreign ministers of Norway, Finland and Sweden, and one former Finnish prime minister. The Foreign Desk was produced by Emma Searle and Christy O'Grady. Christy also produces The Foreign Desk Explainer. To contact the Foreign Desk team, you can email Emma at es at monocle.com and don't forget to subscribe to Monocle magazine and our free daily email bulletins by heading to our website at monocle.com. From me, Andrew Muller, thank you very much for listening. Until next time, goodbye.